and so timing-wise, it couldn't have worked out perfect because the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we're going to spend a week here, and then Lord willing, next week, and then he's going to talk about that. And then we'll look at um, Psalms and Song of Solomon. So I'm really not going to get into those two uh, too much in these two weeks. But in terms of the, you know, tracing the idea um, that, uh, that the book is and that the Bible is of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, the wisdom literature is just a, a bit different in terms of its genre and how we understand it and even in terms of its placing. It certainly says something about that. It has a lot to say about that exactly, but not in the same way. We have to recognize that scripture has different genres, which we talked about in the beginning. There's historical books, there's gospels, there's uh, poetry, uh, there's prophetical books, and now we're, we're, we're looking at wisdom literature. And so it's not, diff, it's not against the law and the prophets, but it's not the same as the law and the prophets. So if you've read the scripture up to this point, you'll recognize, hey, this just kind of feels different or sounds a little bit different, even in the way that it comes to us. It's a different genre. It's meant to, to do something a little bit different. It's a little bit more earthy, sometimes we like to say. It's very practical uh, and gritty. It's also a lot of what we would call common grace or general revelation. Many of the things that are talked about in the book are accessible to us through observation, more so than revelation. Revelation will speak to it or add to it or help us understand it, but we're looking at things in general revelation as well. And then one of the great paradigms to help us understand this, and it was really helpful for me, is uh, Zach Eswine has written a lot on wisdom literature, and he says that we should just think of it as in once Eden. And so what he means by that is we're not in the world that was created, and we're not in the world that will be. And so we're living in something that God created, and he created it beautiful and wonderful, but he also subjected it to futility, right? That was the Lord's doing when we sinned, and so we live in a sin-cursed world. So the world that we're examining, the world that we live in, the things that we experience are not what was created originally, and they're not what will be when the Lord returns. So it gives us some perspective to think about it. How do we live in once Eden? How do we live still awaiting the fullness of the promises? Even more specifically in our time frame, how do we live between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming, right? Because we know that all things aren't going to continue on just as they are. We know that something's going to be different, and we we know that because of the promises of God. So it's not just this endless cycle. This wasn't always the way it was. And even from what we looked at in terms of creation itself, we know it's not what has always been either. There was a time when the universe and the world was not, and God created it. Uh, Time came into being through the Lord. Space came into being through the Lord. Material things came into being through the Lord. So it's really remarkable to think about and contemplate the God who is, the one who is the I am, like uh, Pastor Godfrey was saying today, and who created all things out of nothing, and what that means. And so wisdom literature is a little bit different. And so sometimes people can just think it's all earthy and it has nothing to do with the covenants uh, at all, or scripture, or this promised seed. But I submit to you, we're going to look real quickly at Psalm 1, Proverbs 1, and Ecclesiastes 1. So turn, if you would, to Psalm 1. So 
So Psalm 1 is really an introduction, Psalm 1 and 2, are really an introduction to the whole Psalter. And so they're basically like having a table of contents, which they didn't have at the time. But this kind of explains what's going to go on in the other 148 chapters. And look at Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man. And in Hebrew, that's singular. The man. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. That sounds a lot like what we're going to hear about in wisdom literature, right? Don't go along with the wicked. Don't walk in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, and on the law they meditate day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff, and the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So two ways are laid out. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, which is a theme over and over throughout literature, right? The way of death and the way of life. The way of Lady Wisdom and the way of Mistress Folly, like over and over. The way of God, the way of Satan. The way of everyone's going to do what's right in their own eyes and those who call out on the name of the Lord. But what I really want to point out is here, at the very beginning of the Psalter, it's highlighting blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the, uh, in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the Lord day and night. And we're going to find that there is one man who ultimately does that perfectly. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. And he, does, he doesn't go with the way of the sinner or the scoffer or the scorner or the fool ever. And he delights in the law of the Lord day and night. And then, of course, the psalm also comes to us, blessed is the man or woman who does these things, But we're not doing them for our salvation. We're doing them from our salvation. It's a delight to us and blessed to us to walk in these ways as well. But we're doing them as one who's united to the man that the Psalms is talking about. Does that make sense? Turn to Proverbs 1. And again, the only reason I'm highlighting this is to show that some people think they're just completely disconnected from the covenant. And look at Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Could anything be more covenantal than that? <laughs> right? And it's, I'm not, it's not saying that David or uh, Solomon wrote all of these, but it's the type of wisdom that you would expect of one who is the son of David or the king of Israel. And so we're not saying that Solomon wrote every single word. As a matter of fact, we know that he didn't write every single word in here. But the Proverbs of Solomon, the one who collected them, these kind of things that the king of Israel, the son of David, would say. They're fundamentally covenantal. What does it look like for a king? What does it look like for a righteous one? What does it look like for the son of David? What does it look like for the king to walk in wisdom and to avoid folly? And we see that. What is it, what is it to think about Jesus living in one's Eden? Like, that's radical. To think of the second person of the Holy Trinity coming and living in the absurdities of life with us, right? Ecclesiastes will teach us unabashedly that life is absurd, right? If you haven't figured that out, we'll find out next week. <laughs> um, and, and more, but life is absurd in many ways. Why do the righteous, 
suffer and the wicked prosper. You know, why do, you know, athletes, you know, I'm not begrudging any athlete what they make, but why do some of them make $230 million while we have people struggling, you know, to help teach inner city poor that are barely squeaking by? Like, that's absurd. And I'm not ripping on capitalism. I'm just saying that that's an absurdity in our society, right? That kind of, that's odd. And not what you would expect. And Jesus entered into the fray. Jesus entered into the absurdity of it all as well. He didn't hydroplane over it. He had friends that betrayed him. He had friends that denied him. He had people that spat upon him. He was the perfectly holy and righteous one, and he was treated like he was scum of the earth. That's absurd. But it's in that absurdity that our salvation comes. And then look at Ecclesiastes. Again, is this a covenantal... The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. I mean, I just simply want to point out, when we're tracing this idea that the psalmist, the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes are all pointing forward in some way to Jesus as well. They're talking about the king, the covenant keeper, the covenant maker, the son of David, the the righteous one, the one that we're looking for. We're looking for this kind of king who does righteousness and hates wickedness, who loves the law and scorns folly, who walks in the paths of the wise and rejects the path of of foolishness, who is all about life and shuns death. And so we see that in Jesus. So that's just a simple point that I want to make because sometimes people take it away or take this wisdom literature away from any kind of covenantal idea. And I think... It needs to be a little bit more fully orbed. Questions about that? Comments? Does that make sense? All right. So good. So wisdom literature, as I said, is a different genre. It's very earthy. It's in once Eden. Um, And we're living in the world as created and fallen. And it's messy. Life is messy. And and sanctification is messy. Uh, And trying to make decisions in a sin-cursed world is difficult. And fortunately, we have several books of the Bible that speak to us. And it doesn't give us the one right answer. We constantly want, what's the one right answer? But wisdom literature is calling us to engage and to think about this and to contemplate. And I submit to you, as a humble pastor and as a humble sinner, that if you had the right answer, you probably wouldn't do it anyway. (laughs) How many of us know the law? How many of you know the law and sin this week? You still know it was a sinful, right? I still know. I don't need more information to know why am I overweight. Well, you should probably eat less and exercise more. <gasps> Eureka! Somebody told me the secret. The problem isn't do I know the data, it's how do I do it. It's not a lack of information. It's not, a, it's not the law, right? The law never saves us anyway. It just kind of guides us and directs us and shows us something. And so in wisdom, it's not like, oh, now we just need the one right answer. If you're looking for the next two weeks to give me the one right answer, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If you're looking for a much more fully orbed, freer life to be able to investigate and to think and to explore and to hit pause buttons on things, then hopefully you'll be delighted as we go through. So then we want to ask, what is wisdom? And there are several different words used in Scripture for wisdom that all kind of make it like a 
a diamond. There are various refractions. So it's, again, it's not a simple answer. So it's not wisdom is defined like this and this is the one right answer. There are many things. Turn again in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Listen to all the different words that are used here that kind of give you a picture of what wisdom is. So I want you to come away more with a portrait or a picture than a definition. What does wisdom look like? Not what is it in a, even a strict definition. Listen to these things. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You hear all those different words? And that will be unpacked, right? This is an introduction, really, to the book of Proverbs. And then Proverbs is going to unpack this. There's wisdom, there's instruction, there's understanding, there's wise dealing, there's prudence, there's knowledge, there's discretion, there's learning, there's guidance. All of those things. So it's not like, even if you had the definition, it still wouldn't make you wise. You would just now know the definition. Does that make sense? It's really wonderful to think about. I love wisdom literature. I was excited that uh, we're going to be able to go through this together. So wisdom can't be easily defined, but it can be beautifully portrayed. Chukma is the most common word for it, which, as Reverend Keel says, is a high degree of knowledge and skill in any domain. So wisdom isn't just intellectual. It's emotional, it's relational, it's volitional. It encompasses all of life, right? Therefore, the word can be used not only for the wise person in general, but for those highly skilled in some trade or of craftsmanship, academic erudition, and in the prudence of interpersonal matters. I heard one theologian say, wisdom leaves her mark on everything she touches, whether it's people or art or policies or practices, anything. You know, the, the wise baker, the one who's good at their craft, that makes something tasty and good to eat and good to look at, the, 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 wood, uh, the woodworker, the pianist, the poet, the sermon writer, the legal scholar who does their work well, a good conversation with friends, a faithful listener, all of it is just touched by wisdom. And of course, if all those things ultimately come from the Lord, you would expect that, right? Because he is wise and his works are beautiful and they are joyous and they are wonderful and they communicate something and they're relational and so does wisdom when it's done. And so you've been moved by the works of God in nature, and you've also probably been moved. How many of you have been moved by a song or uh, a, a movie or a picture or a conversation with a friend or what have you? That's wisdom. Like that person had wisdom in doing that and creating that. It's applied in so many different ways. 
Wisdom leaves her mark on everything that she touches. People, art, policies, and practices. And it's also concerned with righteousness. What is the beginning of wisdom, beloved? The fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, Yahweh, again. So when some people, again, say it's not covenantal, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Because to understand anything rightly, you have to understand who he is and who you are. And that he's the one who created, he's the one who decided, he's the one who ordained, he's the one who's orchestrating, he's the one who's ruling. This will become really prominent in Job. It really helps clear that up for us. So in terms of what is wisdom, you know, many different facets, many different words are used, understanding, knowledge, deliberation, shrewdness, discipline, cunning, prudence, strategy, competence, ability, all those things, right? I can understand something and not do it well. We just, uh, I, we had a concert pianist on campus this past weekend, and he played Rachmaninoff. I love Rachmaninoff, a Russian uh, composer and pianist. And I've heard and listened to Rachmaninoff's music over and over throughout the years. I love it, but I've never heard it live. I've never seen it performed live by someone who can do it well. I've heard it butchered. <laughs> um, but it was just so moving, and it was so beautiful. And I realized, there's no way I could, ever, I could never do that. And that's not to a slam on myself like I have a low self-esteem. It's, thank God that this guy is here. And what a blessing for me to be able to enjoy it. And how so with other people? If Michelle had to rely on me in any way to fix something around the house, it would be a disaster. Neither one of us are any good at this. We don't even try anymore. Our first call is, let's call somebody. Because neither one of us are good at that at all. But we're glad that somebody else is. And we're glad that they have wisdom and skill at that. We can't be great at everything. We can't even be good at everything. And so to even know our limits and appreciate the gifts and abilities and artistry of others. I was so moved by this guy's piano playing. It was just absolutely beautiful. And that's great. I don't have to be able to do it. I don't have to get in a competition with them. It would be a disaster for me to ding, 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 you know, try to plunk out chopsticks. He's fantastic. He's great. So I don't know who said this, so I, but I would summarize it as wisdom is the art of living well. I don't know where that comes from, but it's repeated over and over in many books on wisdom, and so I don't know who the original person was, but that says it really well. The art of living well in whatever that might be. The art of living well, which embraces our jobs, it embraces our homes, it embraces our interpersonal skills and relationships, our family, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, our enemies, how are we going to interact with them, authorities, other people in the congregation, our work, our craft itself, the work and crafts of others, nature as we interact with it, all of it. How, how beautiful. Wisdom lives well. It's concerned about wellness. Zach Keel said that wisdom is life-giving and life-affirming and folly is life-taking and life-denying. It's suicidal. Everything about wisdom is going towards truth and beauty and life. And everything about folly is going towards death and destruction and hell and suicide and self-destruction. 
they're not just slightly different. They're different paths. They're different ways of life. They're different gods. One is the God of gods and the king of kings. The other one is the Lord of this present evil age. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to love? That's what wisdom wants to call out to. Lady wisdom, follow me. Follow me to the paths of life and to the paths of righteousness, to truth, to life, to beauty. It even tells us it's going to be rocky along the way and there are going to be things that deceive you and there are going to be things that harm you, but come this way. And Lady Folly is going to try to convince you to go another way. And so we want to start to attune our ears to, to listen to these things and be able to distinguish them. And so one of the things I would like us to think about is that wisdom is more like a compass than a road map. A compass is going to point you in a direction. You know, I, I, here's again a skill I don't have. I don't know which way north is from here. So somebody, which way is north? This way? So, so a compass will say, that's north. And so we say, hey, we want to go north. All right, let's go this way. And so wisdom is saying, hey, generally go this way. Go towards the things of the Lord. Go towards his word. Go walk in faith. Walk towards truth and beauty and light. But it's not going to tell you exactly, make this turn, do this thing. The law will tell us certain things, right? But wisdom will say, there's not exactly one right way to get there. It's that direction. And the classic example, of course, is marriage. So scripture tells us a couple things about marriage. What are two things that all Christians must do according to the law if they're going to get married? What, should, what two things are necessary? By the law. Non-negotiable. <laughs> a license. You need to marry someone of the opposite sex, and you need to marry in the Lord. So for a Christian marriage, you need to, a man needs to marry a woman, woman needs to marry a man, and you need to marry in the Lord. Beyond that, there's a whole bunch of wisdom questions. You could pray all you want or look in your Bible all you want. Michelle's name never showed up in there for me. Who should I marry, Lord? Michelle Kolosinski, right? It didn't happen. But there's lots of wisdom that comes in terms of making decisions like that. If one of you wants 17 children and the other one wants zero, you may want to think, eh, is this going to be the best match? Not do I love them or how do I feel? Or do I have a right to? Sure. If they're the opposite sex and they're a Christian, sure. But then you have to start to think, hey, is this wise? Is this healthy? Is this smart? Is this good for us? If one of you wants to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea and the other one wants to be a lawyer in Manhattan, both of those things are worthwhile. Neither one of them is sinful. Neither one of you are wrong for wanting to do them. But then wisdom comes into, hey, how is this going to play out for us? We need to think about this ahead of time. And not just go in, oh, it'll all work out. (laughs) No, think about it ahead of time. Scripture's telling you over and over, what are the consequences of those kind of decisions? It's not sinful. It's in different categories. Is it living well? Is it going to go well if one of you wants 17 kids and the other one wants zero? Or one of you wants to live in Papua New Guinea and the other one wants to live in Manhattan? And of course, there's all kinds of compromises the couple could make in that. Well, I'm willing to go do this. Of course. But I'm just trying to make the point of 
Scripture doesn't tell you exactly how to do those things. It tells you how to think about those things. It tells you how to go that direction. Go north. And so then when we think about Proverbs, Proverbs is really trying to get us to think. It's trying to get us to ponder, trying to get us to engage, and trying to decide. It's one of the great pause buttons of Scripture. Slow down. You know, I, I would, very few people, I think, read and benefit from reading Proverbs all in one sitting. <laughs> They're meant to be contemplated. Consider the whatever. And to consider something means to take time. Consider the ant, consider the fool, consider the enemy, consider your neighbor. And Jesus will go on and use this language, right? Consider the lily, consider the birds of the air. How much more does your father love them, right? He arrays the flowers with their beauty and he feeds the birds. How much more does he love you? But Proverbs isn't inviting us to even just read the text of consider the lilies and the Lord closed them so he's going to close me. No, consider. Take some time. Our lives are so jam-packed and so full that really to just kind of take the time of Proverbs and the time of wisdom and breathe and go for a walk. Consider the ant. Consider the eagle. Consider the dolphin that you see. Consider the weeds. Consider the flowers. Consider this beautiful creation that God had made and that is marred and learn something from it. Contemplate it. What does it mean? What does it teach me What kind of lessons can I learn from this? Or just appreciate it at times also. And so it's really trying to get us to slow down. We're so rushed. We're constantly moving towards deadlines. So sometimes even in wisdom, we think, all right, I want wisdom right now. (laughs) Or I want patience right now, right? It doesn't happen that way. Wisdom is cultivated over a lifetime. Patience is cultivated over a lifetime as well living in God's world, living under God's design. And then Proverbs also talks about deeds and consequences in general terms. Generally, if you do X, you'll get Y. And if you don't do X, you'll end up with Z. So generally, if you work hard, you'll make money. Generally, if you don't work, you're going to end up poor. That's overwhelmingly true. God even built that into the structure of the fallen world. There are natural consequences for our actions. But lest we say too quick, then our tendency is then to make it a law. Well, then that's always the case. And then Job and Ecclesiastes are going to come along and say, well, wait a minute. (laughs) I can think of quite a few cases where those who don't work hard prosper. We have multi-millionaires and multi-billionaires in our society who are done nothing other than be famous. And we have people who have worked their hinds off diligently for years and years and years and years are living in poverty. Those not compute. It's absurd. We're living in once Eden. And so the, the wisdom literature and dialogue with one another helps gives us a more fully orbed picture of what's going on and how to think about some of these things. 
But Proverbs gives some real practical wisdom. Hey, generally, if you do this, it'll go well for you. And if you do the other thing, it won't go well for you. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, as a father the son in whom he delights. He says, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. It's really calling us to think about and to engage. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and, a man, and, a, and want like an armed man. Right? That's something worth thinking about. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands for rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Right? It's not saying don't drink. It's saying, hey, be careful. The law will say don't be a drunkard. Right? So there's a black and white there. Don't be a drunkard. Wisdom will come and say, hey, what... Recognize that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And if you're led astray by him, right? Not if you indulge in it in any capacity or ever have it, but notice that there's a tendency. If you have too much of this, you're going to end up in folly. You're going to end up with all kinds of problems. You're going to end up with liver issues. You're going to end up with relational issues. You're going to end up with poverty issues. All kinds of things come to play. And so wisdom is saying, hey, consider this. Consider the drunkard. Consider the glutton. Consider the ant, consider the industrious, consider the wealthy. Think about it. Engage, decide, act, choose, but really take time. I really encourage you. I'm trying to do this more and more in my life. Hit a pause button. Sometimes we're just trying to even go to a book to try to figure out the right answer. And wisdom is saying, go for a walk, go for a drive. Look around. We have so many beautiful places to do that here, don't we? So again, we're going to get into Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in more detail next week. But then the book of Job comes along and shows really this deed consequent thing really doesn't go (laughs) the way most of us thought. And the big question that Job is answering is who is wise? And the end of the book is God alone is wise. He's the author and source of all wisdom. Zach Keel says regarding Job, he says, the pressing question is who is wise? Every character in the book claims wisdom, but the conclusion asserts that the Lord alone is wise and dispenses wisdom as he sees fit. The application consists not in an explanation of suffering, but in human repentance and submission before the all-wise God. So a lot of times people will think of Job as a book about like why suffering happens. And Job touches on that, but really there's something even more grand going on in the pressing question of who is wise. And so there are a couple trial by ordeals that are going on in Job, and the first one is that Satan comes in to the counsel of the Lord, and God says, have you considered Job? Here's someone who, the Lord picks Job as his champion. He says, Job's my man. He's a champion. He loves me. He's faithful to me. And Satan starts to say, well, 
that's not true. Well, he's only doing that because you give him everything. And so then he starts to take away some things. And at the end of the book, we see, hey, it was devastating, and there's tons of suffering, and it speaks to all of those things. But at the very end of the book, we find out that Job is his man. Job remained faithful to the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. The end of the book says that his man wins. Zacchaeus puts it this way. The Lord's man did win, not Satan. God was right about Job. It is precisely as the humble and vanquished one that Job triumphs over the accuser. Satan's challenge was that Job would curse and forsake God. God in his suffering and that Job only loved God for his blessings. But in his misery and dust, Job remained faithful in love and devotion. The conquest of Job comes in his humiliation, which in turn vindicates him over his friends. They did not speak the truth about the Lord. Reading the retribution principle backwards is not wise. Not all suffering can be explained by sin. But the reason for suffering is not given in Job. Rather, the surpassing and transcendent wisdom of the Lord is crowned as supreme over all. Job didn't know why a lot of things happened. And that the people that tried to speak to it to try to give him wisdom gave him bad advice and bad counsel. They kept on thinking it must be because you sinned or it must be because of this. There must be a direct deed consequence. And we said from the very beginning that's only generally true. And it's certainly not true in Job. It's interesting that Job will make that crystal clear. And so there's a a trial by ordeal between God and Satan. But there's also an ordeal between Job and God. Where Job at some point is getting really frustrated And so he says, hey, God, I want to go to court with you. I want to plead my case against you. I'm being treated unrighteously. And then the Lord brings 70-plus questions to Job. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I hung the Pleiades? Where were you when I made the Leviathan? Where were you when I did X, Y, and Z? It's a battle of wits. And Job recognizes at the end of that that God is God and he is not, and that God hasn't acted unjustly. His friends, Job's friends were wrong also, but Job looks to the Lord in trust, which manifests what God had said to Satan. He's going to, he's my man. He's mine. He loves me. He's going to call on me. He's going to be faithful. Not in and of himself, right? We know this is the Lord underneath working. But what a beautiful story. And it teaches the really simple lesson that the Lord rebukes the proud, but he exalts the humble. Job was humbled, and he was exalted by the Lord. And the proud Satan is cast out forever. Ecclesiastes, and again, we'll spend a lot of time on this next week, but the key to Ecclesiastes is the phrase, under the sun. It appears 20 plus times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so, in my opinion, and this isn't true of all people, I think it's an orthodox book from beginning to end. I think that when it says that these are the words of the preacher, that that's not, some people think that's the first couple verses of of Ecclesiastes, and then the end of chapter 12, and that in between is the ramblings of a madman. I think the whole thing 
is orthodox. And the whole thing could be said by a preacher. I think the whole thing could be uttered by Jesus. Who better than Jesus to say, life is absurd than the one who's the creator of the universe being killed by his creation? That's absurd. It's orthodox to be able to say so. But there's a point to that and a meaning to that as well. There's a purpose and a reason why, why Jesus came. But the point of Ecclesiastes is to recognize under the sun that we live in once Eden. We don't live in the world that was created, and we don't live in the world that will be consummated. And so then our expectations about how we live and what's going to go on in this world can be really influenced not only by general revelation, but by special revelation and by the interaction with the two and by considering these things and by looking at people like Job and looking what happens in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is really in dialogue with Proverbs, where it says, if you do X, Y happens. It says, yes, that's true, but also this. It's not saying, no, you're wrong. It's saying that, yeah, that's generally true, but this is also true. So they're not contradictory things. They're complementary things. This is generally true, but this is also true. Wicked suffer. I'm sorry, wicked uh, prosper. Righteous suffer. People who exercise and live really well get horrible diseases and die. And people who don't exercise or take care of themselves live long lives. It's not necessarily what we expect. It's not necessarily the deed consequence. Those are generally true, but also other things are going on. And so it wants to engage and talk about the absurdities of life. It's absurd. And it's okay to say so. I submit to you, the preacher, the author of scripture, (laughs) is saying so as well. And all of it in some way points forward to Jesus. Right? He is the king, he is the sage, he is the giver of wisdom, he is the, I was going to say liver of wisdom, but that sounded weird. It's not the, liv- the liver, the one who lived wisdom. He's the giver of wisdom and the liver of wisdom. But he's also our wisdom. I'll just close by reading 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Go in peace. Sorry I went long.